As most of you probably know, we are studying in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor, or as it's known today, Turkey. Isn't that amazing that these seven prominent churches in the first century were all located in Turkey, which is now an Islamic nation? That's quite a, a warning sign to all believers to see what can happen when we begin to slip and slide and compromise. And the first century, Turkey was, had been Christianized. And now it's an Islamic nation. And as I mentioned, the destroyer, Allah is known by his own people as the destroyer. How would you like to serve a God like that? We've learned a lot from our good friend Avi Lipkin over the years about Allah and Islam and, and what it's all about. So I won't delve into that today, but it is interesting to make note. any rate, we've looked at Ephesus, the backslidden church or the loveless church. They'd lost their first love. And uh, as I had also mentioned previously, each of these seven churches were literal churches in the first century in Turkey, Asia Minor. But there is a broad spectrum of Bible scholars, Bible teachers who see within each of these churches a representation of a certain time in church history over the last 2,000 years. Ephesus, roughly A.D. 70 until A.D. 170, that 100-year period when the church has begun to be fully established for about 100 years, that they were commended for their good deeds, their good works, the many holding to the truth and so forth, but the problem was they had lost their first love. And then Smyrna, we started last week, we'll finish Smyrna today. Smyrna represents the suffering or persecuted church, or you could even say the martyr church. And the church of Smyrna represents that time of church history between 170 A.D. and 312 A.D., where there was a tremendous severe amount of persecution. You remember that under Nero, Christians were tied to crosses or nailed to crosses, covered with pitch, with tar, and burned alive, used as human torches to light the pathway or the roadway to his palace. You had the arena, the gladiators, the Christians and the lions, and so forth. And so Smyrna, that period of history, representing the suffering or persecuted church, Pergamos, we're going to start just get an intro to Pergamos today. The compromising church, compromising with the world, that was when they began to integrate some of the pagan holidays and so forth. Even here in New Mexico, we've seen over the past several hundred years what they call syncretism, where the Catholic church came in uh, under the conquistadors to convert the Native Americans. And in the process, they compromised and blended certain practices of the Native American religions with Catholicism. And Catholicism is not the only one to do that, but it's called syncretism, where you have a blending. And most recently, we've seen some churches uh, embracing what is called Chrislam, right? Where you're blending Islam and Christianity. Paul said, what fellowship hath light with darkness, right? Do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Come out from among them and be ye separate. But Pergamos, the compromising church, 312 to 606 A.D., if you're taking notes here. Then we have Thyatira, the tolerant church or corrupt church, 606 to 1520. Sardis, the dead church. 1520 to 1750 A.D. Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, or the Missionary Church, it's been called, because during that time period, from 1750 to 1900 A.D., was a massive onslaught of Christian missionaries all over the world. It's also been referred to as the Faithful Church, Philadelphia. And then finally, the last church that we will see in Revelation chapter 3, Laodicea, the lukewarm church, and most Bible scholars and theologians see that as representing 1900 until the present. The church basically of the last days, the lukewarm church. Now, 
I would take it a step further. We have the immediate context for these churches. Jesus is addressing both their, their uh, successes and their shortcomings. And then we have the historical context for each of these seven churches. And I would say that in addition to that, all of these churches have existed to one degree or another down through human history. The loveless or backslidden church, the suffering person... There are believers suffering all over the world today being persecuted for their faith. We haven't experienced very much of that yet here, but it is increasing if you haven't noticed. The compromising church is alive and well today. The tolerant or corrupt church, also alive and well. The dead church, yes. The faithful church, God always has his faithful remnant, does he not? And the lukewarm church is definitely alive and well in 2020. So that's just a little overview of these seven churches as we continue on. I'm going to read now Revelation 2, 8 through 11, just to get us back into our context, and then we'll pick it up in verse 10. Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. We covered that last week. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome, amazing book of Revelation. And we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to study it together, Lord. It saddens us to think that so many people uh, under the umbrella of the church have chosen to avoid this book, thinking it too controversial, too difficult to understand. Lord, you put it in here in the Bible because you want us to study it. You want us to know these things you want us to be prepared for what's coming. So we ask you to bless this time of study in the book of Revelation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just as a reminder, Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh, Smyrna. See? The etymology of the word there. And it's a, as you know, myrrh is a spice associated with suffering. The wise men brought myrrh to Jesus at his birth. And then the ladies who went to the tomb to prepare his body thinking he was still dead, brought myrrh once again. Myrrh was used in the anointing oil of the tabernacle and in embalming dead bodies. So there is a symbol there because, again, Myrna, Smyrna is the persecuted, suffering, martyr church. So there is a, there's a connection there with the myrrh, Smyrna, the martyr church. Verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. So there's good news and bad news. The good news is do not fear because the Lord is with them. But you're about to suffer. They'd already suffered. But Jesus tells them there's more to come. And that's what I love about God. That's what I love about Jesus. That's what I love about our Bible. So many of these religions, these man-made faith systems are not realistic. They don't tell you the whole truth. They don't tell you any of the truth. They just give you all these flowery words and, you know, with esoteric, deep, understandable meanings. God lays it out there like it is. He tells it like it is. And He doesn't send us off into this world unprepared, uneducated. He tells it like it is. He tells the truth. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it just to get people to follow him. Oh, you follow me. And, and that's one of the unfortunate things about uh, these uh, faith teachers, prosperity teaching, the word of faith and all that. And a lot of these popular TV guys are into that. Is they try to tell you that if you just have enough faith and you say the right words, you'll never have any problems. See, that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says right here, you're about to suffer, Smyrna. I made a joke one time years ago. We were studying, I think it was the Book of Romans, down on uh, when we were down by the Roosevelt Park there on um, 
way back. I think we were on Hazeldine across from the stadium there in that old, old Mormon church. At one time, it was originally a Mormon church in the 1930s. But we were studying the book of Romans, and, there were, and we were, you know, there was a lot of subject matter regarding suffering and so forth. And I said, we should hang a banner out front that says, come suffer with us at Calvary Chapel East. I think then it was Southeast. And how many people would come to a church like that, right? You hang out a banner, come suffer with us. And yet that's real. That's truthful. You know, we live in modern America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, at least for the time being, sort of. But we live in a nation that was established on Godly biblical principles, freedom of worship, freedom of religion, right? But for the bulk of, the, of human history, going back even beyond the New Testament, go back to the children of Israel, go back to Cain and Abel for the entire history of the human race, God's people have always suffered because this world is in rebellion against God. Therefore, those who are not of God... They hate God. They hate God's people. We have been blessed to live in a season of grace, if you will. And by the way, this season of grace was purchased with the blood of men and women who fought and died to give us this freedom. Nobody remembers that anymore. But what we have been experiencing, we've been in somewhat of a vacuum, folks, here in America. And I think the air is being sucked out of the vacuum. Well, vacuum doesn't have air, does it? We've been in a bubble. They'd already suffered. Jesus says, there's more to come, but do not fear. John 16, 33. While he was here on earth, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. What do you do when you're not feeling peaceful? You're not experiencing peace in your life. You need to get to the Prince of Peace as quickly as possible. In me, you may have peace. If you're not peaceful, then you need to get closer to Jesus. He is the source of true peace. Do you know that? In the world, you'll have tribulation. How many of us here today are in the world? Everybody. So what does that mean? Every one of us are going to experience tribulation to one degree or another. But be of good cheer. Why? How? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Again, where do you get that peace? How do you become an overcomer? You draw near to God. You draw near to Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. So again, touching on that spiritual warfare issue that I mentioned earlier. Jesus didn't say, evil men are going to throw you into prison. Yeah, they will be the devil's instruments. They will be his vehicles. But as believers, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So it's the devil that's going to throw some of you in prison. And I would say behind every evil ruler, emperor, overlord, you name it, Congressman or woman, senator, other politicians, if they are not men and women of God, they might identify that way. But behind every evil ruler, emperor, overlord, there is an evil fallen angel named Lucifer, the devil. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So you see, remember when Joseph, his brothers had thrown him, thrown him into a pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. He was taken to Egypt. He started off good. Then he got in trouble with that floozy you know, over there that tried to seduce him. He got thrown in prison. He's about to be executed. God bails him out. He becomes second in command in the land of Egypt. Remember? And then he rescues his family from Famine, starvation, potentially death, as uh, Jacob and the rest of the family are over there in Canaan, and they're experiencing a severe drought and famine, and the brothers start traveling over to Egypt to see if they can get some food. 
They encounter their brother because he's in charge of all that. He's the Secretary of Commerce, if you will. Secretary of Agriculture. And they don't recognize him. He's older. He's, you know, dressed like an Egyptian. And, uh, but then when they find out who he is, man, they think they've had it. They're toast. Joseph's going to kill them all for what they did to him. And they know they deserve it. But then Joseph said, hey, guys, it's okay. Don't worry about it. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, the saving of many lives. And so, Jesus said, the devil's going to throw you in prison, but it's so that you can be tested. God is going to use the sufferings, the persecution, the imprisonment, and even the martyrdom to make you strong, to strengthen your faith. And so many people struggle with this. If God is such a good God, a loving God, why does he allow bad things to happen to, quote, good people? First of all, there's no such thing as a good people. <laughs> We're all sinners. We're saved by grace through faith. The only righteousness we have is that which God imparts to us through his son, Jesus Christ. But let's just, you know, for the sake of argument, say, okay, well, you know, there are there are good people and there are bad people. There are people who make an effort to be good. There are people who try to do the right thing. And that, as believers, that should be us. That our MO, our, uh, the way that we conduct ourselves in life, even though we do fall short on many occasions, that we are moving towards the light. We're following Jesus. We've repented. We've turned from sin. We're following God. And yet we all stumble in many ways. But then there are those who really have no desire, no inclination at all to do good. And yet Jesus died for them too. But God allows bad things to happen, a quote, to good people for our good. To test us, to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith. 1 Peter 5.10 but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. So in other words, we're going to be living forever in the glorious presence of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, his death on the cross, we get to be participants forever in God's glory. But notice this, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, I would suspect you ask just about any believer, would you like to be perfected? Do you want to be established? Do you want to be strengthened? Do you want to be settled? Oh, yeah, man. I'm in, I'm in all the way. Well, guess what? After you have suffered a while. It's the old expression like they use in the... Uh, athletic world, the weightlifting world, no pain, no gain. Paul said that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. They go hand in hand. Luke twenty two thirty one. the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Peter, indeed, Satan has asked for you or asked permission that he may, he may sift you as sweet. Wow, Lord, I'm, thank you, Lord. I'm sure you said no, right? <laughs> Lord, you would never let that happen. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but I have prayed for you. <laughs> what do you. When people say that to you, I'm praying for you, man. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot. No, but you should be thankful that people are praying for you, right? But I'm sure Peter wasn't all that heartened when Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And so what's he saying? Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And I said, okay. <laughs> really? I've prayed for you. Well, Jesus praying for you is not a bad thing at all, right? That your faith should not fail. The testing of your faith. And sadly, that's where we see many so-called believers, people who identify as believers, 
fall away, drift away when the trials and tribulations come. If there were no trials or tribulations, if there were no suffering in this life, if God blessed you with a perfect life in Christ, then how would anyone else, or more importantly, how would you know if you're truly a believer? Sadly, there are many people who go through life with the false assumption that they are truly saved, born again, when indeed they are not. They may be religious. They may know about God. It's important that we know that we know that we know that we truly have a relationship with God. Anybody who's healthy, wealthy, prosperous, popular, powerful, and that even the... Um, the disciples struggled with this, remember? Jesus told them, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And see, the prevailing belief, even in Jesus' day, even amongst the Jews, amongst Jesus' own followers, was the more prosperous you were, the more God liked you or loved you. If you were poor, if you were sick, that means God didn't like you. The only problem is that's not biblical. And Jesus had to correct him on that. Because the disciples said, man, Lord, if that's the case, if it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle, who can be saved? If the wealthy, the prosperous, the popular, the powerful, if they can't be saved, who can? And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. But to equate earthly wealth, health, some of the most dynamic, amazing, incredible believers through the history of the church have been poor, sick, outcast. Again, like I said, we've been kind of living in a modern-day bubble. And you know what? I'm going to also draw a comparison with the church world and the, the secular world in that people are now trying to reevaluate history through what we now know and see. Just like people are trying to reinvent Christianity through their own modern eyeglasses. When our context, our frame of mind, our frame of understanding for the historical church is so incredibly limited by our own limited experience. The same thing's happening in the secular world. All of our founders, our leaders, great men and women, again, like I said, who in many cases laid down their lives in the example of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no freedom. Ultimately, the freedom we have in Christ is because His blood was shed for us. The freedom we have as Americans was because of the many who have shed their blood on our behalf over the past 250 years. But for you to even suppose or presume or assume for one moment that you have any concept of what it was like to be an American in the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, most people today don't even have any concept of what it was like to be an American in the 1900s. They've called the World War II generation my parents' generation the greatest generation. But how many today even have any concept of who they were or what they went through? My parents lived through the Great Depression. My mother didn't have very much to eat growing up. She was 98, 5'7", 98 pounds, never could gain a pound. Because growing up, she didn't even have milk. They lived on beans and cornbread and stuff like that. Can any American today even conceive of that? Even the poorest of Americans have food stamps and welfare so they can get their Pop-Tarts and anything else they want. Gratis. So I'm really sick and tired of idiots who have no concept of history or what those people went through, how they lived, what they believed, why they believed it. Shut your stupid, idiotic mouths.
and grow a brain. Look out. And it applies to the church world and the secular world. Reinvent Christianity? Give me a break. God is the source of our faith. Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. You shut up and let him write his own book. Whew. I could sure use that fan about now. It's getting a little hot up here. The old expression, hot under the collar. Finally, Jesus told Peter, I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, so some more good news, not if you return, Jesus knew. Peter would stand the test. When you've returned, I'm praying for you, Peter. You're going to make it through this. I'm going to use it for good. It's the devil asking to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to use him as my instrument for your good. It's kind of sad sometimes when, well, the devil did this to me and the devil did that to me. He can't do it to you unless God allows it. And if God allows it, it's going to be for good. Hello? Quit giving the devil so much credit. He's just God's pawn and puppet. So finally, he says, when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So that's another aspect. First of all, he allows it for our own personal strengthening, our own growth, our own maturity, and then he allows it so that in turn we can help others. You see? Because once you've gone through it and you understand it, then you're more able to help somebody else, right? If you don't know what they're going through, it's hard. You can say, hey, I love you, I'm praying for you, but not necessarily understanding what they're going through. But once you've been through it, you can help strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Not if, but when. You just fall into them. It's not like you're looking for trouble, right? Now, sometimes we are and we shouldn't be. But when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, there it is again. You know, we can fool ourselves. And we can fool other people sometimes, but we can't fool God. The testing of your faith. Our faith needs to be tested on a regular basis. It keeps us in check. It produces patience or perseverance. But let patience or perseverance have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. I'm telling you, folks, God's purpose in our lives is to grow us, to mature us, to strengthen us, to bring us to completion. But there's a lot of believers out there still in diapers. You've got to make that decision. You're going to persevere. You're going to endure. You're going to let God do his perfect work in you instead of trying to get around the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties. And by the way, that's one of the enemy's strategies. The enemy says, if you just back off on God, I'll back off on you. You know, you can, you can believe, just don't go to church. You can believe, just don't pray. You can believe, just don't read your Bible. And the devil will kind of leave you alone. But if you get serious about being a disciple of Christ, the word disciple is connected to the word discipline, gathering of the saints, prayer, fellowship, studying your Bible, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Well, then the devil's going to test your faith. Let patience have its perfect work. Perseverance have its perfect work. Perseverance means you persevere through the trial. You persevere through the tribulation. You persevere through the test with God's help. And you grow. You become stronger. You become more mature as a believer. Complete, lacking nothing. So we go on. He says that you may be tested and... You will have tribulation 10 days. Again, it is a commonly accepted understanding among many Bible scholars that this refers to the 10 great persecutions in the early centuries of the church. 
We have Nero from 64 to 68. Paul was beheaded under his reign. Nero. Domitian, 95 to 96. John was exiled during the period of Domitian's reign. John wrote this book of Revelation during the reign of Domitian. Then you have Trajan from 104 to 117. Early church father Ignatius was burned at the stake under the reign of Trajan. Then you have Marcus Aurelius, who was um, depicted in that movie Gladiator. 161 to 180, another early church father, Polycarp, was martyred under the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Then you have Severus from 200 to 211, Maximinius, 235 to 237, Decius, 250 to 253, Valerian, 257 to 260, Aurelian, 270 to 275, Diocletian, 303 to 313, and he was the worst emperor of all. And so from uh, 64, 64 to 68, Nero, all the way up through Diocletian, 303 to 313, the 10 great persecutions of the early church. So the 10 days, and again, uh, oftentimes in the Bible, Daniel's 70 weeks represent 490 years. Here are these 10 days of persecution, according to the most well-received understanding, represents 10 serious times of persecution lasting all the way up until the 300s. And so what does Jesus tell the people of Smyrna to do? Be faithful until death. And so we've seen again down through human history, both in the secular world and the church world, where some have given in to persecution and they've turned on their fellow believers or fellow citizens thinking that they would get a pass. And almost without exception, when somebody plays the role of a traitor after they've done their dirty deed and exposed the innocent to suffering, to persecution, to death, they themselves are killed, right? You've seen that over and over again. That's the deception of the enemy. If you just serve me, then I will bless you. But it never turns out that way. And even now, the people who are behind a lot of what's happening in our world today, all the rioting, the destruction, the desire to destroy, to tear down, and, quote, rebuild... You can't build much with a pile of garbage, I'll tell you that. But just like in the communist revolution, 100 years ago, Russia, a little over 100 years ago, the people at the top always think that they will be immune, right? We're, we're the uh, Wizard of Oz here. We're the man behind the curtain running the show. And when the dust settles, we'll have all the power and all the money. Well, in the Bolshevik Revolution, those who started that were ultimately executed by the next group that came along. And it always works that way. Because when you serve the devil, there can only be one ultimate outcome, death and destruction. So there are those right now who are deceived into thinking when they completely tear down our world, our nation, and rebuild it in their own image, that they will prevail. And I tell you, they will not. But God will prevail. There's only one side anybody should want to be on, and that's God's side. I don't know if I can stop. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm so sick and tired of hearing this racist thing. Racism is a fallacy. It doesn't exist. Why? There's only one race, the human race. Guess what? I don't care what color you are. We all have the same mother and father. Adam and Eve, we all have the same DNA. There's one human race. Now, there can be bigotry. There can be prejudice, right? And all that stuff, that's existed from the beginning of time because we all are born in sin. We have a sin nature. It is part of the natural, carnal human nature to be bigoted, to be prejudiced. It doesn't make it right. I'm just saying that's how people are. And every people group has those issues. Okay? Again, the great uniter, Jesus Christ. 
But I'm, I want to encourage you to stand with me and call people out when they continue to spread these fallacies. Racism is a fallacy. How can, if you're a racist, you're against yourself. There's only one race. Maybe we could start to figure some things out if we could start using the proper terminology. And you don't fix one problem by creating another. One group has been mistreated, so I have to take this other group and just hate them all, right? Okay, we're, you're all bad now. We hate you. We're going to kill you to fix this problem. Does that make any sense? Didn't we all grow up as kids with that expression, two wrongs don't make a right? <sighs> There's no common sense in this world. I've said it for years. I've even thought about writing a book about it. The death of common sense. Where is it? God gave you a brain. But the Bible also says that if you reject God long enough and hard enough, your conscience will be seared as with a hot iron. What does that mean? When you have a wound, back in the days before they had stitches and so forth, they would cauterize it. They would take a piece of hot steel and they would seal that wound. But what happens is then you have scar tissue there, right? When you have scar tissue on your brain, it doesn't work right. There's a lot of people with scarred brains running around. God can fix your brain, but you've got to ask him. He can give you the mind of Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that tell you? Apart from Christ, our minds are skewed. They're twisted. We need them renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Why stop offending people now? <laughs> Be faithful unto death. Again, what is Jesus telling them? Some of you, you're going to be thrown in prison. Some of you are going to be called upon to die for Christ. And again, thank you, Jesus. Again, we have selective hearing. We talked about this before in previous teachings where the disciples had selective hearing. When Jesus was trying to tell them, I have to suffer and die. They don't want to hear that. Right? All we want to hear about is the kingdom, ruling and reigning. Can I sit at your right hand and your left? And Oh, we don't want to hear about this death stuff. Selective hearing. We have that tendency. But I thank God that our God tells us the truth. Smyrna, you have suffered, but you're going to suffer more. Some of you, the devil's going to throw you into prison. Be faithful unto death because some of you are going to die for Christ as many have down through the centuries. Again, this is a foreign and alien to us, but I would, I would guess millions of believers over the last 2,000 years, and if you go beyond that to the Jewish Old Testament believers, literally millions upon millions of people who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died for their faith. And by the way, another reason God allows the trials and the testing and the tribulations because we never know when one of us may be called upon to die for Christ. And if we're not being prepped, if we're not being trained, if we're not being strengthened, what would happen if they stood you up and said, you, you renounce Christ right now or you're done? We're going to shoot you. We're going to hang you. We're going to behead you. What would you do? Would you stand firm? Or would you back down? Would you give in? Oh, you know what? I was really not, never that serious about this Christianity stuff. It was kind of more like a hobby, you know? And I kind of liked the social interaction when we used to have that. And then social distancing came along, and then I kind of lost interest in the whole deal, if you want to know the truth. So, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. You don't have to shoot me. I, Jesus who? Do you guys see what I'm getting at here? Be faithful unto death. Ultimately, folks, and again, not in, the, in as strict of a sense as we're talking about martyrdom, but ultimately we must all be faithful until 
death. You can't say, well, yeah, you stand before God. and Yeah, when I was, um, when I was like seven or eight, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer in Sunday school, and I figured, well, okay, I'm good to go. But then I went off and lived my own life, my own way, and I just kind of forgot all about God. But I still get in, don't I? I don't know, do you? I wouldn't want to take that chance. Be faithful until death. Now, people scoff at a deathbed conversion, but you know what? God will take you anytime, anyway. I don't recommend waiting till you're on your deathbed because what if you, you're still considering it? You're moments away from death and you're still pondering, I don't know, do I believe in God? Do I believe in Jesus? Boom, you're gone. And I believe, I believe there are countless numbers of people because God is so loving, He's so gracious, He's so merciful. I believe we're going to be amazed at people that we see in heaven who with their last dying breath received Christ. That's how gracious our God is. But man, I tell you, you're walking a tightrope if that's the way you're going to try to do it. Okay, I got a plan. I'm going to live life to the full, baby. Yeah, I'm going to go for the gusto. And then I'm going to trick God. At the very last minute, just before I die, I'm going to get saved. Man, that, I wouldn't go that route, would you? Not at all. We should have it as our goal to be faithful until death. Right? What's part of the marriage vow? Till death do us part? I don't know how many people follow that anymore. But... We're married to Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. You know that, right? Till death do us part only with Jesus. It's till death do I see you face to face. And then the promise for these suffering saints in Smyrna, the crown of life. And I will give you the crown of life. This is known. There are various crowns in the New Testament. This one is known as the martyr's crown, the reward of one who is faithful under trial or unto death. Uh, the victory wreath of the martyr, following the normal Greek use of crown for the garland given to winners in athletic events. In other words, they finished the race. They ran the race like Paul said, I have finished the race set before me. I've run the race. The victory wreath, the crown of life, eternal life in Christ. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So it would appear that this is a crown God has in store for every believer. The crown of life, eternal life in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.12-15, Now if anyone builds on this foundation, Jesus... It's talking about the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear for the day, big D, the day of the Lord will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. We've gone over this passage many times. If you have a pile of uh, wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and straw, and then you throw a few rubies and diamonds and pearls and different things in there, and you set fire, all the wood, hay, and straw will burn off, and what will remain will be those precious gems. The fire will test each one's work for what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And so there are rewards in heaven. And though I don't think we think about it that often, and really, our motivation should be our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Good works will be rewarded in heaven. There are crowns awaiting. Of course, there's that group casting crowns. That's biblical. We will cast our crowns at his feet. But it will be nice to have one to cast, right? Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So, again, we see this message at the end of Jesus' remarks to each church. 
He who has an ear, let him hear. And so in other words, those who are spiritually tuned in, those who are filled with the Spirit and have spiritual ears to hear, listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And again, we've talked so much about this idea of being an overcomer. In this case, with Smyrna, it's overcoming persecution, it's overcoming imprisonment, it's overcoming potential martyrdom, overcoming the world and its persecution. And again, that's the test. Everyone, we all want to be liked, don't we? Or even loved. And so oftentimes, we do things or say things that maybe aren't really what we we think or believe or feel, right? Because we don't want to risk someone not liking us, right? But there's a whole issue in the scriptures of fearing man versus fearing God. And if we fear men more than we fear God, we've got a problem. I don't think you can be an overcomer if that's the way you are. If you have a greater fear of men than you do of God, you're not going to be able to overcome Your fear of God has to be first and foremost. Your love for God. You've got to be willing to be rejected. That was the cross of Christ and the one he told us we would have to take up if we wanted to follow him. You think of it as the cross of suffering. He did suffer tremendously. Beaten, mutilated, beyond recognition, nailed to a cross. But ultimately, Jesus' cross was the cross of rejection. Rejected by his own people. Rejected by his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the sins of the entire human race have been placed upon Christ on that cross. And for a moment, for one moment out of eternity, Christ experienced separation from the father. Rejection. Why? Because of our sin. The cross of Christ is a cross of self-denial and a cross of rejection. I have decided to follow Jesus. Do you know that song? Though none go with me, still I will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus said. That's what it takes to be an overcomer. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the first step to becoming an overcomer. You must acknowledge that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures or overcomes temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He who overcomes... Here's the whole ball game right here. Shall not be hurt. And uh, the NIV adds the words, at all. Shall not be hurt at all by the second death. Did you know there's a second death? Everybody is scared to death (laughs) of the first death. Trying to avoid the first death by any means possible. We just had a memorial service for our beloved brother, Charlie Andrews. And like so many, even though Charlie was in the final stages of life, there's this innate inner strength that causes people to fight death, fight death. Have you seen it? People with cancer, various diseases, and people think, oh, they're done, they're gone, they're going to be dead by tomorrow. And here you are several months later, they're still hanging it. What's the deal? And a lot of times you just pray, you wish they'd be, they could be done with their suffering, right? But we have this built-in thing that fights against death. Why? Because God created us to live forever. You see? And in our spirits, because it's our spirits that are created in the image of God. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. Our spirits, we are created in God's image. They fight. The body is dying, but the spirit is fighting to live on because that's what we were created for. And so many people 
They're trying to hang on as long as they can, not realizing, wait a minute, there's a second death, and that's more crucial, more critical than the first one. The second death involves eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Revelation 20:14, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The one who overcomes, he who overcomes shall not be hurt at all by the second death. The one who overcomes gains victory over this wicked world system, masterminded by Satan, will live forever in the presence of God and will not in any way be affected by the second death. I've quoted this many times. It was Dwight Moody who said it, as far as I know, D.L. Moody, he who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said. If you are born again by the Spirit of God, how does that happen? You put your faith in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul and you put your hand to the plow, and you don't look back, and you be faithful unto death. Born again. You're only going to die once, folks. And the first death is not the one you have to be afraid of. It's the second one. By the way, Jesus has no criticism for this church. He had criticisms for Ephesus. He will have criticisms for all the other churches, I believe, except Philadelphia. No criticism for this suffering church, the persecuted church, the martyred church. The saints were faithful in spite of suffering. They thought they were poor, but they were rich. Rich in the spirit. In contrast to Laodicea, who thought they were rich, but were actually poor. Revelation 3, 17, 18, because you say, I'm rich. You become wealthy and have need of nothing. You have your own TV station, your own radio station, your own crystal cathedral. I'm rich. I've become wealthy. Have need of nothing. Do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, spiritual gold, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And we'll get deeper into that in chapter 3. But the contrast between Smyrna and Laodicea. Smyrna thought they were poor, but in fact they were rich. Laodicea thought they were rich, but in fact they were poor. Because in God's economy, richness is of the spirit. And spiritual poverty, again, is a spiritual issue. A quick introduction to Pergamos, and then we will wrap it up for today. The third in our, of our seven churches, known historically as the Compromising Church. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I love this. Pergamos means, and the NIV is called Pergamum. Pergamum, and here we in the New King James, or King James Pergamos, it means citadel in Greek. It was located about 45 to 50 miles north of Smyrna. You can find these, Google them, you can see them on the map. It stood on the banks of the river Sacus, about 20 miles from the sea. It's now called Bergama and has a population of about 20,000 people and only around 2,000 professing Christians today. They had one of the finest libraries in the ancient world. Parchment was first made here. In Pergamos, you can kind of hear the connection, parchment, Pergamos. It was called by the Greeks, Pergamene. Parchment was Pergamene in the Greek from the name of the city. And it had once been the capital of the Roman province of Asia before Ephesus. We mentioned earlier that Ephesus, Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, but it had been uh, Pergamos previously. Again, it's representative of church history during the period approximately 314 to 590 A.D. It's also known not only as the compromising church, but as the worldly church. And as I mentioned earlier, I think Pergamos has made a big comeback in these last days. 
Many parts of the church today are very compromising and very worldly. He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, they, they also had a world-class library, and they had a great many books there, but we're going to see that a return to the Word of God is needed by the church of Pergamos. Verse 16 of Revelation 1, He, Jesus, had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth with a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So here in chapter 2, he identifies himself as he who has the, two, the sharp two-edged sword. In chapter 1, we see that two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In Revelation 19, when Jesus returns with the armies of heaven, which will include us riding on white horses. If you're not an equestrian at this time, you will be. I like to ride. I started riding when I was like five years old. But uh, I, I'm sure I'll be a much better horseman when I'm part of God's heavenly army. When he comes back in Revelation 19, it tells us in that chapter of Revelation that he slays the armies of the earth with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. There it is. I can't wait to see that thing. Proceeding out of the mouth of Christ, the word of God, the power. Remember when Jesus spoke to the soldiers, I mentioned this not long ago, in the Garden of Gethsemane? We're looking for Jesus. Where is he? Right here. Boom, they all fell over. It's that same word. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. The word of God digs right down deep inside. We call God the great physician. He is the great surgeon. He takes his word and he gets down in there and he cuts out all the junk and he makes us clean and pure and holy. That sharp two-edged sword dividing, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. There is a division between the soul and the spirit. Sometimes we identify that soul as the mind, the will, the emotions, and sometimes soulish things get in the way of the spiritual human emotion, human compassion, other human feelings that are not in line with the Spirit of God. God gets down there and shows us the difference of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We can convince ourselves that our hearts are pure, that our thoughts are pure, but then we open up the Word of God and we begin to read, and you can feel that sword, can't you? Huh? Oh, man, Lord. Wow. Right? The conviction of the Holy Spirit. And thank God for it, right? So, when this guy, the man with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth talks, I think we need to listen, right? So next week we'll look at this third church, Pergamos. Let's stand. Thank you, Jesus. See the one-way sign? Give God the glory. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful, dynamic passage of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would help us to identify and relate with the church of Smyrna, Lord. We haven't experienced a lot of suffering or persecution as believers in America, Lord, but it, it looks like it could very well be coming soon. And so, Lord, we understand Sometimes we get upset, we get frustrated, we get disappointed. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Lord, why did you allow that to happen? Well, today we know. Because you want to strengthen us. You want to grow us. You want to build perseverance and endurance into our lives so that when more difficult things come, we will be ready to face them. Lord, you've never intended to leave us unprepared. You've done everything that you could to warn us, to prepare us for whatever may come our way. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You've given us fair warning, but you've also given us encouragement. Do not fear. Your perfect love casts out all fear. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Lord, help us to hang on to these things with all our might. And Father, as we close, I would pray that anyone here today that doesn't know you, Lord, or anybody watching at home, on the internet, on the live stream, 
If they don't know you, Lord, if they haven't been born again, they know about you perhaps. They might be religious even, but they don't have a personal relationship with you. That today they would open the door of their heart to you, Lord. They would acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That they would invite you to come in to live inside of them. That they might be born again by the Spirit of God and have no fear of the second death. And Lord, we ask as we go today that you would strengthen us, empower us, enable us to stand firm in these last days for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.